Welcome to this week's Investors Chronicle Personal Finance Podcast. I'm Lenora Walters, and joining me today are Kate Bailey and Emma Ajimang, Deputy Personal Finance Editor and Personal Finance Writer at Investors Chronicle, and Sarah Lord, Board Director at the Personal Finance Society. This week's Investors Chronicle is a special issue focused on the individual savings account, or as most people call it, the ISA. This is a tax wrapper which, like a pension, allows you to hold investments within it, such as shares, funds and cash. And as with pensions, investments held within an ISA do not incur capital gains tax when sold and you are not liable for further tax on any income or interest they yield. Sarah, ISAs have some of the same tax advantages as pensions, but there are some major differences between these two types of tax wrapper. What are they? The main similarity is that essentially the investments grow tax-free within the wrapper. But as you say, there's some major differences between them. The main one being as far as whether you get tax relief on your contributions on the way in. Under a pension, you do, but under an ISA, you don't. But the flip side of that is that when you come to take your benefits out of an ISA, you don't pay any income tax or capital gains tax. Whereas on a pension, apart from taking up to 25% of your fund value as a tax-free lump sum, the rest of it is taxable. There are also differences as to how much you can actually pay into each of the uh, tax wrappers. The maximum that you can pay into an ISA is 15240 whereas for a pension it uh, ranges between 10000 and 40000 for the current tax year depending on your income and, and your earnings. So those are the main differences between an ISA and a pension. Okay, so bearing this in mind, what would you say are some of the main tax planning uses for an ISA? The main tax planning uses of an ISA are really if you're looking to save funds that you wish to access in the the medium to long term. Whereas under a pension, once you pay into it under current legislation, you can't access it until at least age 55. That's increasing to 57. Uh, whereas under an ISA, you can access it at any point. So it should be seen as a medium term savings vehicle. Okay, so what aren't ISAs suitable for? In the main, ISAs are are suitable for most savings, most um, investments. The only caveat I suppose I would put on it is if you're looking to save for the short term. So you have a relatively short time horizon, such as say less than five years. Um, I wouldn't be advocating investing in the stock markets, but you may wish to look to take out a cash ISA um, for, for to cover that period. Okay, and we're going to be discussing cash ISAs in a bit more detail in a few moments. But before we get there, um, if an investor at the end of a tax year, um, perhaps they're thinking about using their allowance, um, if um, if you're newly setting up an ISA um, or, or, or a different type of ISA, are there any things that you should be particularly careful or wary about? I think the main thing um, when considering setting up an ISA for the first time is obviously to do some research. Look into the various providers. There's plenty of providers out there um, and do your research as far as where you can actually invest through the ISA. By that, I mean um, what your investment options are, whether it's stocks and shares, whether it's using investment funds and also in importantly consider what the charges are that are being that will be applied to your 
ISA. And I suppose the final point to note is um, the end of tax year is fast approaching. Um, so um, you need to allow time for processing of your application. So it's better to be looking at it sooner rather than later. E.g. don't expect to do it at uh, 5pm on the 5th of April. Sort of yeah, thing. there yeah. are there are providers that will uh, that can um, help you uh, so late in the day, but I would always advocate um, trying to do it sooner rather than later. Indeed, yeah, and your computer might crash. Yeah, so, <laughs> yeah. Um, turning to what you have inside the ISA, lots of our listeners have stocks and shares ISAs, and some of our listeners might be considering setting one up. Now, what's a suitable number of investments to have within an ISA portfolio? It varies depending on um, the actual value of your total um, ISA portfolio. So if you're looking to set one up for the first time in the current tax year and making the maximum subscription of just over 15,000, you're probably looking it's probably best to be looking at um, investing in funds rather than into direct equities. Um, and certainly as you're starting to build your portfolio, maybe look at um, getting exposure through three funds that are quite varied in investment strategy and style. And as your portfolio grows and you add to it over the years, then look to diversify, add some more funds um, to it, investment funds that is. And then ultimately, um, if you're prepared to take a bit more risk and your portfolio has grown, then start to look at investing in direct equities. Okay. And um, how often should you review the investments in an ISA? Um, it's it's always good to get into the habit of reviewing your investments. Um, you know, stock markets are well known for their uh, volatility from time to time. We've certainly seen that over the years. So um, there's there's no sort of perfect magic answer to that. It also depends on your time. But certainly um, you should be reviewing it at least annually. We would um, advocate more, more realistically quarterly as a minimum um, so that you can just keep Keep an eye on how how your investments are performing. Okay. Now, if you don't have any new money to invest, but have some existing investments that aren't in an ISA or a pension, could you possibly transfer them into an ISA? Yeah, there, there is the option of what's referred to as bed and ISA, which is essentially where you are selling your existing investments and repurchasing them through the ISA wrapper. Um, where this can also be of benefit is that you could potentially have capital gains within your existing portfolio. So you could be making use of um, your capital gains allowance as well um, in that transition into the ISA. That's 11,100 a year, isn't it? Correct. Yeah. Yes. Um, and, uh, and the other, the main consideration about the better and nicer approach is um, just considering the charges in doing so, um, because you may be charged to come out of the existing investments and then to repurchase them. OK, thank you, Sarah. Some really useful points there. Now, picking and holding the right investments in your ISA is really important, but now so is picking the right type of ISA, because come the new tax year in April, there'll be no less than six different types of ISA. Kate, what are the six different types? So there'll be uh, cash, stocks and shares, 
uh, the help to buy ISA, lifetime ISA, innovative finance ISA and also a junior ISA. OK, that's quite a lot. What are the rules on these? Could, could you potentially hold all of them? No, you couldn't. So in one tax year, you can fund one cash ISA, a stocks and shares ISA, an innovative finance ISA and um, lifetime ISA too. Okay, and well, saying the lifetime is up from April, from April because that's not actually launched yet, is it? That's right. Yeah. Okay. Now, first of all, let's start the cash ISA. It sounds good. Um, you can hold your cash there without um, uh, sort of paying tax on your interest. But last year they introduced the personal savings allowance, which also gives you a certain amount of um, interest tax free. So, is it actually any point in holding cash in an ISA? Um, well, yeah, we do have this new personal savings allowance and it's pretty generous, really. Um, basic rate taxpayers can earn up to £1,000 of interest from savings tax-free. Higher rate taxpayers, £500. Um, additional rate taxpayers actually don't have this allowance. So it does make more sense for them. Um, so arguably, if you are a basic rate taxpayer, you'd have to earn or you'd have to hold you know, a lot of money in an account to actually start paying any tax because um, you would obviously have to accrue an enormous amount of interest. But there's a, certainly an argument, certainly for higher rate and additional rate taxpayers to still have cash ISAs. Also, the benefit of holding cash in nicer is, is you just don't have to think about the tax implications. And if, you know, interest rates rise and you do get kind of a better return on your savings in the future, it could just be well worth having having cash here because it's just not something you would need to worry about. Okay, now now you mentioned interest rates and you talked about them possibly rising in the future. The point is they're really low at the moment. So um, you could argue that with low interest rates, there's no point in holding cash? You could argue that, but as I said, rates might rise in the future. So could definitely be worth thinking about it for the future. And it's just not something to worry about, um, which it would be if you, if you held cash outside of an ISA wrapper. Okay. Um, Sarah, do you think there's any point in cash ISAs? I agree. I mean, I think there is a, a point in cash ISAs. I think one of the key things is that interest rates could rise um, in the future. It looks unlikely at the moment, but ultimately they could. Um, and if you're using your cash ISA, you're essentially ring fencing um, that capital within the ISA wrapper, whereas each year you're looking at using your personal savings allowance. So I think if you're taking a, a view over the the future, then making use of uh, your ISA alliance using a cash ISA it is the best thing to do. Okay. Now, Kate, a couple of the ISAs you mentioned could be helpful to young people wanting to get onto the property ladder. Which ones are these and how do they work? Um, so, yeah, there's two. There's the Help to Buy ISA, which launched December 2015, and that'll be available until 30th of November 2019 to new um, to people wanting to open one. And then we've got the new Lifetime ISA, which launches in April. Now, both are similar principle in that you get a government bonus of 25% on what you've saved at the end of the tax year. But Help to Buy ISA is just for a house purchase alone, and it's a cash ISA. A lifetime ISA can be used either to buy a house or you could leave the money to accrue and then use it for retirement. So you have to do one or the other. You either buy a house with it um, or you leave it in there until you're 60. And when you you know, pay for your retirement with it and you'll get penalised after year one if you do take it out for that reason. Lifetime ISA stocks and shares as well as cash. So you do have the choice with that one. OK, now some differences there. Uh, would you say that one's better than the other? 
Well, I think the, the Lifetime ISA has a bit more flexibility in that it will remain open longer for the help to buy and its stocks and shares. So obviously you could accrue quite a lot more in there than with help to buy. You can also save more in there per year. I should say that there are maximum um, limits onto what you can save. So help to buy the first month you can pay in 1200 and thereafter £200 every month. Lifetime ISA, you can save up to 4000 a year. So obviously you, you could end up with a much bigger pot in a stocks and shares lifetime ISA than help to buy. Um, but then you will get penalised if you take the money out early to not buy a house if you take it out after 2017-18. Okay, some pros and cons of both. So if you're not sure, could you have both? You can have both. You can um, hold, uh, because help to buy is obviously essentially a cash ISA, you could certainly have that and you can have the lifetime ISA at the same time. Though you could only use the government bonus on one, so you couldn't kind of get a 50% government bonus to buy a house. And in the 2017-18 tax year alone, you could move over your help to buy ISA if you've opened that in the previous tax year. You could move that over into the lifetime ISA and it won't count towards your subscription limit. So that's quite a key thing for anyone who has already opened one um, because you essentially get this kind of loophole. You get an extra allowance. Okay, um, some interesting things there, but um, uh, nothing's perfect. So are there any sort of like risks or downsides that people should watch out for um, when opening these types of ISA? I think that the main thing is that penalty. You do need to think about when you might be buying a house and if you might be buying a house. Okay, is that penalty with the leaser? It's with the leaser, yeah. Yeah, and what, what is the penalty? It's 25% of, of the value um, of what you've saved. So, you know, that's a big that's a big chunk. Um, it does only apply after the first tax year because the government has kind of given given people a reprieve in year one. And obviously that's only if you're withdrawing it early, not using it for its kind of intended purpose, which is retirement or a home purchase. Sarah, do you think the Lifetime Wiser will be a good savings vehicle for young people? Absolutely. I think as a nation, um, we need to be saving more for our future, whether that's for our house per- um, house purchases, because we're a nation of um, sort of people that want to buy houses, or indeed saving for our, our future retirement. I think as far as kind of property purchase, it's an effective way for people to save towards buying a house. But if you've already bought your house um, and are thinking about how else to save, there is the government bonus um, in the lifetime ISA. So um, it is definitely worth considering it, even if you're looking at it as you know, funding retirement in the future, particularly for those young professionals that are certainly under the age of 40, because that's a key thing is that you can't take one of these out if you are 40 or over on the 6th of April of this year. But if you are a young professional where maybe your pension contributions are restricted due to your earnings, it is another means of saving for retirement. But as Kate mentioned, the help to buy ISA will still be available for another few years. How would you say that weighs up against the lifetime ISA? You know, what should people opt for? I think certainly um, if you're looking to save in the current tax year, as Kate says, um, open up your help to buy ISA before the end of the tax year. And I think one of the key differences really, uh, as we've already said, is the fact that you can pay more into the lifetime ISA and get, get the benefit from the government than you can under the help to buy. 
So in some respects, it comes down to how much you can afford to save as well as to which is maybe the most appropriate ISA. If you want flexibility as to what you're actually using your savings for, then potentially the lifetime ISA um, gives you that greater flexibility because if you don't use it for the house purchase, then you are putting it towards your retirement. Okay, with that in mind, though, if young people only have so much to save each month, should they opt for the lifetime ISA or should they opt for a pension? It's a hard balancing act. Certainly, I would always advocate that um, if you um, are entitled to a pension scheme through your employer, which most people are under auto enrolment, to make sure that you're saving through that because you get your um, company contributions too. So that's sort of priority number one. It then comes down to really as far as flexibility is concerned and what you're looking for um, for the future. The lifetime ISA could potentially be the best uh, vehicle to save through as it's introduced and we see how it evolves over time if you are already contributing to your company pension scheme. Okay, thank you, Sarah. And you can see Kate's full roundup on the different types of ISA and ways to use them in this week's money section or online. Investing tax efficiently is an important contributor to returns, but so is minimising the costs of doing this, as these can eat into large chunks of your gains, especially over longer time periods. So as well as picking the right ISA, picking the most cost-effective one for your purposes is crucial. Emma, you've been looking at this. What kind of providers are a good option for self-directed investors looking to set up an ISA cost-efficiently? Well, there are a range of providers out there, Leonora, um, from stockbrokers to wealth managers and platforms. But if you want to manage your investment yourself, then I think platforms are the obvious choice. Um, and the reason is they allow you to manage your investments online and hold shares and funds together, making it easier to keep track of. And also, um, it's you're able to buy funds often cheaper through a platform than if you were to go directly to the asset manager. Okay, so what are the main charges investors incur with platforms? Well, there's four main ones to look out for. Um, Administration fees, fund fees, dealing fees and transfer fees. Um, And I mean, there are a whole bunch of others, but these are the four types that most platforms will charge you. Okay, so starting with administration fees, how do these work? Well, an admin fee is a charge that the platform will charge you to hold your investments with them. Um, and it can be quite confusing because different platforms call this different names. Some will call it an annual administration fee. Some will call it a custody fee. Um, others call it an account management fee or a platform fee. But it's basically the same charge um, that they will charge you to use their service. And there are two main ways that platforms will charge. It can either be a percentage-based fee or a flat rate fee. Um, And generally, flat rates are better for those with larger pots. So um, you would say rough guide of um, £100,000 or more um, because it caps the amount that you can pay. And percentage-based fees are better for smaller pots. Okay. So what would be examples of providers which charge each type of administration fee? Well, some of the better options around are Halifax Share Dealing, which charges a flat administration fee of £12.50 per year. 
Um, and on the percentage base fee, we've got AXA Self Investor, which charges 0.35% on assets under £250,000. And above that amount, it's 0.2%. Okay. Now, what other factor can affect the level of fees you pay? Well, it really depends on um, what you hold within your ISA. So some platforms will charge you a different amount based on whether you hold funds or shares or a combination of the two. So, for example, Hargreaves Lansdowne charges an annual admin fee of 0.45% on shares and they cap that at £45 a year. But if you also if you hold funds, they will charge 0.45% on the first 250k and that um, falls to 0.25% between 250,000 and 1 million. It then goes further down, 0.1 between 1 to 2 million. And then there's no charge um, if you hold funds over 2 million pounds. Okay, so something else to consider there. Now, you also mentioned dealing fees. What do investors need to consider when comparing platforms, different dealing fees? Well, you obviously need to look at the headline cost because many platforms will charge about about £10 per trade. But you also need to think about how much you're likely to trade. So if you're going to be trading often, you know, it'd probably be better to choose a platform with a lower charge or one that has cheaper deals for frequent traders to stop the amount that um, you pay in dealing fees kind of spiralling. What what about fund trades? Um, what, 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 do these, what do they charge? Well, there's a there's a range, and there's actually several platforms that often offer free fund trades. So these include AXA, Self Investor, Barclays Stockbrokers, Charles Stanley Direct, Fidelity Personal Investing, Hargreaves Lansdowne, and TD Direct Investing. So these platforms will actually charge you nothing to buy and sell funds. That's quite an attractive option. Mm. Is there anything else you can do to mitigate dealing fees? Well, another option you have is regular investing, and that's definitely a good way to reduce the fees you pay. So you will set up a monthly direct debit with your platform, and um, as long as you make monthly contributions, they will cap the amount that you pay for dealing fees, often to as little as £1.50 per trade. And considering that most platforms charge about £10, that's that's quite a big reduction. So um, examples include AJ Bell, Alliance Trust Savings, Hargreaves Lansdowne, Interactive Investor and Self Trade. They all charge £1.50 for regular investing. Okay. Um, Sarah, how important do you think costs are when choosing an ISA provider and the investments which underlie it? Costs are um, extremely important, ultimately. If you're paying quite high charges, it ultimately has an impact on the performance and the total return that you receive. So it is important to do your research as to what the, you know, the costs are. We've just heard how it really can vary from platform provider and the various institutions. It's also important to understand and what you're essentially paying for because some of the charges we've just gone through are for sort of self-directed but if you are looking for an investment advisor to give you advice then do expect to pay more because obviously you're paying for that expert advice as to where you should be investing. Okay and other than costs are there any other things that you'd want to consider when um, picking between these various ISA providers? 
Obviously, um, what the, for some people these days, technology is really important as to how you can actually access your investment, where you get the information. Many providers now, not only do they have a website, but they have an app. So if that's important to you, do your research from that perspective. I think that's probably the biggest thing, but also it's important to understand and do your research as to what the, each of the providers' general administrations like, because there's nothing more than frustrating than you know, not getting a response if you're trying to query something. I think it's still very true to say that if the charges are lower, then you may not get the same level of service. So it's understanding what you're expecting from your provider. If you want good quality service, you're probably going to have to pay a little bit more. As always. (laughs) Thank you, Sarah. And you can see Emma's full cost comparison of different ideas of providers and tips on reining in fees in this week's money section and the website. That brings us to the end of today's podcast. So it just remains to thank Kate Bealey and Emma Ajimang, Deputy Personal Finance Editor and Personal Finance Writer at Investors Chronicle, and Sarah Lord, Board Director at the Personal Finance Society. You can read more on how to use your eyes and minimise costs in this week's issue of Investors Chronicle on the website. And for some eyes investment suggestions spanning funds, investment trusts, passive funds and shares, check out this week's special supplement. Thank you for listening and have a great weekend. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.